please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 1. And I, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Let's once again ask the Lord's blessing and presence upon the word of God as we study it together. Let's pray. O our Father, we are very thankful for these words of the Holy Scriptures and for your servant Paul who understood that wisdom does not come from mere men. Wisdom does not come from the abilities of men, even of good men. But your wisdom is the gift of your Holy Spirit through the written word of God. And so we pray, our God, as we have prayed this morning, that you would subdue our unbelieving and rebel spirits and give to us a sweet humility that receives in meekness that word which is able to save our souls. So please draw near to us and bless us in all of our weakness and need. Help us, our God, to believe to appropriate, to obey your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are duties of the Christian life which are a joy. Think especially of baptisms when you have someone who is converted and you get to see a baptism. That is a season of great joy for the people of God. And there are other duties which are a cause of sad concern, like confronting a brother or sister in church with a sinful pattern. That's, that's a difficult day. And one of the reasons some duties are not welcome, they are unwelcome, 
is that we perceive those duties are difficult to carry out properly. There are pitfalls to such duties that we need to be aware of and to avoid even while we pursue the right aims of such duties. The Apostle Paul provides a good example of the right management of this kind of duty. The Apostle Paul has been combating the Corinthians' love for worldly wisdom, as I've said in previous sermons on these, on these uh, verses, on 1 Corinthians 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, Paul has been, com been combating the, the Corinthians' love for worldly wisdom because, number one, it was not good for them. And number two, it was one of the reasons they were divided in their thinking and in their relationships to one another. Paul has sought to distance what God teaches and, and his purposes in the gospel from worldly wisdom. He has emphatically asserted that he has simply endeavored to preach God's gospel as God's spokesman. But starting now in verse 6, he turns in a slightly different direction. He has begun to explain that he is not a fool, that he is not an anti-intellectual. You might get the impression when Paul says, we don't preach the world's wisdom, that Paul doesn't isn't interested in the use of his God-given uh, mental faculties. Paul is not what some accused him of in Athens, some idle babbler. But what he does say now is that there is a unique wisdom communicated to some of his hearers. I'll say that again, because this is what we're going to see this morning. There is a unique wisdom which Paul communicates to some of his hearers. In the rest of this chapter, there are two things. We're starting our exposition of verses 6 and following. And in the rest of this chapter, Paul does two things. Paul declares, first of all, and proves that his wise teaching is not to be confused with the wisdom of the world. It's not the same thing. It's not uh, really related to the wisdom of the world. And that's what he says in verses 6 through 9. Second thing that he does is he says that this, the possession of this kind of wisdom, God's wisdom, is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God exclusively. That's why we pray for God's Holy Spirit. It is because the possession of this wisdom and the communication of this wisdom is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And that Paul says in verses 10 through 16. So what we're considering this morning is actually just verses 6 through 9. And God willing, next week we'll take up verses 10 through 16. And as you look at these verses, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9, there are three things that I want to underscore that Paul says. First of all, there's a basic statement about the wisdom that he speaks. It's a basic statement at the beginning of verse 6. And then he gives us a twofold definition of this wisdom in the middle of verse 6 through verse 7, and a compelling proof of this definition 
in verses 8 and 9. So that's the roadmap. That's where we're going this morning. God helping us. So first of all, there is a basic statement about the wisdom that Paul speaks in verse 6a. Notice in your copy of the Bible. And there's going to be a slight difference. I know many of you read the King James Version. And you'll see there's a slight difference in the translation. I'll explain that as we go through it. 6a. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. The King James says among those who are perfect. So this is Paul's basic statement about the wisdom that he speaks. He says, we speak it. We speak this kind of wisdom. Well, who's the we? I guess that's the, that's the big question. When you first start looking at the verse, who's the we? Well, uh, the original writers are identified in the beginning of the letter, Paul, an apostle, and Sosthenes, our brother. So it includes at least those two men, Paul and Sosthenes. We should probably think of other helpers of Paul who shared in the same doctrines, shared the same spheres of labor. We had men like Timothy and Titus, Barnabas, who's mentioned in the letter, Apollos, who's mentioned, Peter, Epaphroditus, Luke. These are some of the men who are identified with Paul doing the same work, teaching the same doctrines. We speak, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. The wisdom, Paul tells us, the wisdom spoken of has a limited audience. That's what Paul says. In a sense, everyone who repents of their sins and embraces Christ and his salvation partakes of the wisdom of the gospel. The gospel is saving wisdom. And it is our wisdom, it is your wisdom this very day to think about your sins and to repent of your sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had contrasted that wisdom with the world in the earlier verses, but here he's doing something more. He says the mature, or as it is in the King James, the perfect, are the more limited audience of this wisdom, which is also founded in the gospel, but goes beyond the fundamentals. Paul says we speak wisdom among this, this kind of wisdom, among the perfect or the mature. The, the King James has, as I say, the word perfect, and the translators of the King James Version have consistently translated the word Sophia, when somebody has the name Sophia, that's, that's the Greek equivalent of the word wisdom. And the King James consistently translates the word Sophia by the word perfect. And so, in, in, in what sense, I ask, in what sense are some believers perfect? They're, well, here's the answer, here's my answer at least. They are not missing any essential aspect of Christian character. If you went to a, to a, um, if you went to a uh, yard sale, and you saw there a Monopoly game, said, oh, yeah, I, I always wanted to have a Monopoly game. So you buy the Monopoly game and you find out that there are all the pieces, the houses and the hotels and the little pieces you move around the board. But they say, oh, yeah, the get out of jail card free. Uh, 
we lost it, so we, we put another card in there. And when you get that card, you just know that's the get out of jail free card. Well, is that is that uh, set of Monopoly perfect at that point? Well, no, it's actually not perfect because there's something missing which belongs to the game. So people who are perfect, the way Paul describes them, are missing no essential Christian character. No essential Christian character. And so it, it could be, it should be translated mature. These Christians are not absolutely perfect, and you know that. You know that because we don't know any Christians who are absolutely perfect, but they are not missing any important, essential grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, goodness, self-control. Uh, I'm not sure I got all of them, but there are seven fruits of the Spirit if someone is missing joy. I knew a Christian man who seldom ever manifested any kind of joy. You would not call him a perfect Christian or a mature Christian because he's missing an important element of Christian character. So when Paul says we speak wisdom among the perfect, he's not talking about sinless perfection because that's not in this life. But he's talking about people are not one-dimensional in their Christian character. They have a full orb development of likeness to Christ. Take a moment with me, please, because I want to make sure that I carry your conscience. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Here Paul talks about his character as an apostle and a man of God. And it helps us to understand in what sense we understand the word perfect or the word mature. In chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul is talking about his desire to be like Christ, to be uh, like him in his sufferings, in his, uh, in his character, uh, and he, he's looking forward to the resurrection from the dead. That's when he's going to be perfect. And so he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is he's not perfect. He, he strives to be, he strives to be a well-balanced Christian with all of the graces, but he says, I have not, I have not already attained it. I have not already become perfect. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Christ laid hold of me for a purpose, to be like him. I haven't gotten there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward goal of God in Christ Jesus. And now, very interesting, he has already said, I have not attained it, I have not already become perfect. Notice what he says in verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. But in what, so he says earlier, I haven't already become perfect, but there are people who are perfect, and he actually includes himself. What does he mean? 
A perfect man, in Paul's language, is a person who is missing no essential grace of Christian character. Paul says, I'm not perfect, I'm not sinlessly perfect yet, I haven't attained a resurrection, then I'm going to be perfect. But now, I'm striving to be perfect. And there are Christians who are mature, every Christian grace and character. I remember listening to Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, he evidently had an older brother who was in class uh, with a teacher. And uh, in following years, Sinclair Ferguson became a student to that teacher. The teacher didn't appreciate Sinclair Ferguson and told him, you're nothing like your older brother. You're nothing like your older brother. Well, that was cutting to a young man trying to learn. He thought, Sinclair Ferguson said, I thought about heaven. And when I get to heaven and I am transformed, then I'm going to say to my teacher, Am I like my older brother now? That's when we're going to be just like our older brother. Then we're going to be perfect. Now we may be mature. Then we're going to be perfect. So that's what Paul's talking about when he says, we speak wisdom among those who are perfect. King New American Standard, that's mature. And that's what, that's what, the, uh, that's what Paul is concerned about. He, he wants his speaking to those who are capable of receiving his teaching. And uh, he is telling them the, the wisdom of God. He's telling them about Christian love. He's telling them about trust in God. He's telling them about usefulness and assurance. Those are things that the mature manifest and may receive. Now, some Commentators dispute this idea that there is a particular group within the church to whom Paul particularly speaks this wisdom. They say, well, the gospel is wisdom, and the highest wisdom is in the gospel. There's nothing higher. They argue that this is the possession of all believers. In one sense, I agree with them. The gospel is wisdom beyond which there is nothing higher. That's true. But there are several reasons to think that Paul is speaking of people who are capable of receiving a higher degree of truth. First of all, this was a plain declaration. The gospel is wisdom, and the wisdom Paul teaches was something that did not appeal to men's intellects, and their aesthetics. It was primarily a witness. Paul calls it a testim testimony. We speak the testimony of God. Secondly, there is a distinction between basic teachings and further teachings in the New Testament. The Bible teaches that level of Christian doctrine, which is something that everyone is not ready quite ready to receive. I'd like you to look at John 16. Because uh, this is the kind of thing that you want to make sure that you see in your Bible. It doesn't matter whether I say it or someone else that says it. If you don't see it in your Bible, you shouldn't believe it. So let's see it in our Bible. Okay, John chapter 16, starting in verse 12. This is the Lord Jesus 
He's with his disciples. He's telling them about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, Jesus says this to the, these are the 12 apostles. Shortly, they're going to be preaching the gospel to the nations. And this is what Jesus says to them. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So even though these men were with Jesus for three years, and they were soon to be apostles preaching wide around the uh, Roman Empire, Jesus tells them that there are some things which they are not prepared yet to learn. I have many things to say to you. You might also turn to Hebrews chapter 5, because this is one of the things that we find in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. The right to Hebrews is talking about Jesus as our great high priest, and he says in verse 11, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So Paul says there is a kind of teaching which is milk, fit for little babies. And there is food, spiritual food, which is the, the steak. Of the, of the word of God. Notice again how Paul continues to describe this in verse four, 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unaccustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for, who? For the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So there are elementary teachings, and again, Right, the Hebrews did not want to go over those at this point, but there are more advanced teachings which are for the mature. So, uh, the Bible does teach that not all ought to be trained at the same rate, but according to their ability to receive the word of God. That's why Paul tells Timothy to select certain men to be trained be teachers of others, 2 Timothy 2.2. There is such a thing as leadership training. And of course, Paul says this himself in 1 Corinthians, when he says, we speak wisdom among the mature. And then in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, and what do infants, what can infants receive? They can receive milk, not steak. Infants of Christ, for I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. And since there is jealousy and strife among you, are, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Paul says, I couldn't, I couldn't give you the advanced teaching. I could not give you the mature teaching. I could not give you the, the meat of the word of God. But I had to feed you 
with something much simpler than that. Now I know that this truth, that there are different levels of teaching, which some are unprepared to receive and others are prepared to receive by the grace of God. Because again, some people think this separates Christ from more advanced teaching, but it's not so. It is not so. Uh, I'll try one more illustration for you. Uh, math. All math is built on numbers and operations. You know what I mean. Numbers, one through ten, up to a hundred, etc., etc. All math operations are built on numbers. All math is built on numbers and operations. So you have four basic operations that that the youngest school child gets to learn uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. That, those are the roots of math. And all math builds upon numbers and operations. Those are basic ideas. But there is an accelerated math, isn't there? It doesn't leave numbers and operations behind. It's built on them. So if you go to college and you take calculus, Analytic geometry, uh, you'll still be dealing with numbers and operations, but much more advanced. See? So there is, there is a relationship between numbers and operations and advanced math, and there is a relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and all Christian teaching. All Christian teaching begins with Christ. We never leave Christ behind. We always go and learn more of him and his ways. Well, here's the basic statement that Paul makes about the wisdom that he speaks in verse six. We speak, we speak wisdom among those who are perfect, those who are mature. Now, I'm sure that when this letter was read at Corinth, that everyone wanted to know what this advanced wisdom was. And the closest we get to it is verses six and seven. That's our next point. We've looked at the basic statement about the wisdom that Paul speaks. Secondly, the a twofold definition of that wisdom. Paul gives us a twofold definition of that wisdom at the end of verse six and verse seven. Notice, starting in the middle of verse, verse six, a wisdom, that's the advanced wisdom that Paul teaches to the mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So here Paul now comes to define this wisdom. And it gives you a twofold definition. Now, this is this is a let me point out. This is a, a brilliant way of teaching. This is a divine way of teaching. It is to define things that are really important by what they are not and what they are. Uh, an example in the teaching of Jesus, for example, is his teaching about the resurrection. The Sadducees said that there was no resurrection. Which is why they're sad, you see. They're really sad, because they don't believe in any resurrection at all. And they said, okay, so a man's going to die. He's had a couple of wives. Which, which, which 
man will she be the wife of in heaven? And Jesus says, it's not like the sons of this age. We are the sons of this age. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's not it. But they are like this. They are like the angels and they don't marry being sons of the resurrection. So what Jesus says, well, you're mistaken. It's not this, but it is this. And that's what Paul now does with his definition of this wisdom. You might expect a technical definition of wisdom, which Paul does not give. He doesn't think it's right to give them, but he does give them a wisdom that they can receive. They can't receive the higher wisdom. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and following. Young, young students think it's nonsense. I remember speaking to a youngster about variables and algebra. Variables and algebra really confused me, threw me for a loop because now, now you not only have one, two, three, but you have X, Y, and Z. And I said, what is this that they're putting letters now into math? And I flunked my first semester of algebra for that very reason. It was nonsense to me. And that's the way it is. It's like someone describing computers. And my granddaughter asked me, help me, Grandpa, to buy a computer. You go online, you see this uh, computer, the 30, the 3910. It's got a four core, 4.3 gigahertz, 16 gigabytes, DDR RAM, one terabyte, solid state drive. What does all of that mean? If you don't know, if you're not familiar with that terms, it seems like gobbledygook. Come on, speak English to me, will you, Grandpa? Well, unfortunately, that's what you get when you get on uh, on Amazon Prime and you go to the computer section, you get that language. Someone needs to know it. So there is something inappropriate about untimely instruction. You see, if you happen into an AP course, that's a high school course with college subjects, and you sit down, you start listening to the lecture, you say, I, I just don't get it. It's nonsense to me. And when men who are unprepared for advanced knowledge don't get it, that's what they say. It seems like nonsense to me. And when they do think they grasp it, it causes them to stumble because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, you see. And that's what happens to some people. They get a little bit of a, say, for example, a little bit of Greek or a little bit of Hebrew, and they think they're experts and their head swells, and they don't know how to handle it. That's why you talk about people who have a big head. It's a real danger. That's why Paul doesn't give the advanced instruction to those who are unprepared. It's not spiritually healthy for them. So Paul provides this two-part definition. It's a negative side and a positive side. You see it right there in the text. Here's the negative part. He says that the, uh, and he says what he's been saying all along. The wisdom he speaks of is not of this age. A wisdom, he says, verse 6b, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Now, the word age there is about a people who live in a certain period in the way they live under the influence of supernatural powers. 
uh, when I was much younger, and jets became the preferred way of travel. They called that the jet age. And then you had the computer age, and now we have the internet, and who knows what other ages we have. That's a, that's a, a, a people who live in a certain period of time under the influence of supernatural powers. And people may know, yeah, I live in the internet age. Maybe the next thing will be the, the Bitcoin age. I don't know. But whatever the age is, it's under the domination of supernatural powers. This is a present evil age in which we live. And unconverted men and women, boys and girls, are under the influence of Satan. That's this age. There is an age to come which will be under the direct power of God our Savior, that age that Jesus spoke about when those who attain to that age do not marry or, or are given in marriage. That's the age to come which will be under the direct control of God our Savior. We live now in one sense and with a foot in each age. We live in this present evil world and those of us who have embraced the gospel live under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reigning now until all his enemies are put beneath his feet. So, Paul says, if you want to understand with what this wisdom is like, it's not this. It's not the wisdom of this age. It's not mere worldly wisdom. It doesn't agree with the world's ideas. Dear brethren, we need to understand this. It's vital for us. The wisdom, the, the, the gospel wisdom, and any other wisdom we may receive from the word of God is inconsistent with the wisdom of this age, divorced from the gospel. Many Christians don't understand that. It's dangerous. Paul, Paul continues to hammer on this point because the Christians at Corinth were divided over worldly wisdom and over their champions. And Paul's telling them, this is not worldly wisdom. It doesn't agree with the world's ideas. It's not consistent with the world's ideas. It's not just dressed up in religious language. That's what some people think that they're getting from the world. Well, okay, so it's not, it doesn't have the right shirt and tie. So we'll dress up this world's wisdom with spiritual clothing. That's not it. The wisdom of Paul and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit is not just worldly wisdom dressed up in religious language. It's not the same thing at all. And Paul not only denies it in general, he identifies it with those concrete individuals who might be the best advertisement. And think about it this way for a moment now. Who are the wise people? Who are the smart people? Paul's already asked that question in 1 Corinthians 1. He's coming back to it now. He says that the wisdom of this world is not God's wisdom. It's that the wisdom of this world is the best people with the most influence and power. You see, Paul says the people 
who are the rulers of this age. God's wisdom is not of this age, not of the rulers of this age. See, what the rulers are the people who have gotten to the top of the heap. They have used their money and their influence, and they have gotten people behind them in our culture. They get voters behind them. They get donors behind them, and they move up the, the political ladder until they get to the top of the heap. That's the same thing that was happening in Paul's day. Our wisdom is not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. The movers and the shakers. Paul has in mind his governing officials. Their place at the top seems to be a vindication of their wisdom. Their counselors, their cabinets, their experts whom they consult in human learning. They people who specialize in law, history, warfare, economics, agriculture, sociology. It's a big one in our generation. But the wisdom of these experts is what most people will follow. And now it's even worse. I don't know if it was this way in Paul's day, but today we have influencers. Heard that term, influencers? They're celebrities. They're people who have accomplished nothing in this world but getting more people to like them on Facebook or Instagram than any other place. They are influencers. And they seem to be people, they've got money, they've got fame, they've got following, but they haven't got God's wisdom. And again, Paul denies that Reasoning from their place on the top of the political heap or the social heap is a vindication of their wisdom. Paul says that's not our wisdom. And Paul brings a brief polemic or argument against it in two Greek words. Notice in verse 6. He says, We speak wisdom. Not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. He says that's the most important thing for you to understand. About the people whom everyone's admiring and everybody's following, they are passing away. They are constantly becoming obsolete. If one follows after another, uh, people say, well, okay, you know, the elections are coming up again. And what they say people who want to be in the office, they say, we need to change. We need to, it's time for a change. And our administration is going to change things. We're going to bring in more money. We're going to bring in more programs. And we're going to change our society. It's going to be improved. It's going to be wonderful. Paul says, one after another, they are raised up as leaders with their backers who promise hope and relief. And one by one, they prove to be essentially ineffective and they are cast aside either by political revolution or by uh, martial conquest. Their systems become worn out and fail. And this is the history of merely human government. This is the history of it. Paul does not say, as you might expect him to say, that their wisdom is passing away. That's not what he says. He says much, something much more profound than that. Those in the best position to show what their wisdom can accomplish 
fail. They are passing away. And this is what proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that their wisdom is worthless. These ought to help Christians to reject their wisdom. Imagine you were at a pool. Another illustration for you. You're at a pool, community pool, and you have this group of people who promise you that they can teach you how to swim. Now that would be valuable for me because I can I can float on my back, but that's just about all I can do. I can paddle myself on my back to the wall and get out of the pool safely. Imagine you went to the pool and somebody says, oh, we can teach you how to swim. They tell you, if only you listen to them, they make great promises. Wonderful pictures of your future as an Olympic swimmer. But all you all, you all get in, and before they're in five feet of water, they're floundering. Are you going to trust those people to teach you how to swim? Why, well, I certainly hope not. And this is the problem with the people who are saying, we know how to run society, we can make this country better. Once they get in office, they're floundering. They're ruining uh, things that used to be valuable. So that's the negative part, Paul says. He gives you a negative definition. He says, our wisdom is not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. And then he gives you the positive part. In contrast to the wisdom which is found in men, this is God's wisdom. And Paul continues to harp on the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. This wisdom is a mystery. Now, it's not what we were hoping for, but that's what it is. God's wisdom is not something which you can arrive at by long hours of stand, sitting up on a mountain in a cave, thinking, thinking, thinking. Not going to happen. You're not going to arrive at God's wisdom. I don't know what you'll arrive at, but it's not God's wisdom because God's wisdom is a mystery, fundamentally unknown by men. It is a hidden wisdom, and that's what how Paul puts it together. It's a mystery. Difficult to figure out. Difficult. Beyond man's ability to figure out. So if you're thinking that you can just read a lot of books, read a lot of history, that would be good. Learn a lot of math. Learn a lot of applied sciences. Great. You want to arrive at God's wisdom that way. That's not how you get it. Because God's wisdom is a mystery. Its, it's parts are hidden. From common observation, uh, this is the way Paul uses mystery in the New Testament, the way that the Bible uses mystery in the New Testament. It is hidden wisdom. It's beyond what the understanding of men can attain, it's cryptic to men. Now, the, the words are simple enough, but it does not make sense. It is hidden because God... What God decided to do was to hide this wisdom before all the ages. Before he made the world, God took wisdom and he said, okay, I'm going to give wisdom to people, but it's going to be mystery. It's going to be hidden. It's going to be centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before time began, God decided he wanted to favor his people. And so he planned it. He planned it, he decided, he fixed it by divine decree. The content of wisdom 
and the mysterious nature of wisdom. And why did God do that? It wasn't that God was going to say, well, nobody's going to know it. Nobody's ever going to know it. And that'll make me feel very happy. No, he did it to mark out his favor to his people. Paul says God before the ages determined to hide wisdom from common observation for our glory, the glory of his believing people. The rest of the world doesn't get its reaches, but his apostles do, the mature do, the people of God do. And it is for their glory and for God's glory the acknowledgement of his love and favor. It's not for us to be proud. And God gives us wisdom. It's a gift from God. And we don't have anything that we have not received. So here it is. Paul has given us a basic statement about the wisdom he speaks about and a twofold definition of that wisdom. Not this age, but the mystery of what God has hidden and given to his people. Well, in the third place, We've looked at the basic statement about the wisdom, a twofold definition of the wisdom, and now a compelling proof of this wisdom, a compelling proof of this wisdom, starting in verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Again, he's distancing it from the prominent men of the age, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Here's a compelling definition, a, a compelling proof of Paul's definition. First of all, he states that both Gentiles and Jews have showed their ignorance. The men of the world in the days of Paul, in the days of Jesus, have violated the central focus of God's purpose and plan. They've, they rejected God's plan. Although, through his power, they accomplished his will, they did so without meaning to do it. You see, God's plan was to provide redemption through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And they didn't try to fulfill that purpose. They tried to thwart God's purpose they crucified the Lord of glory. So, in trying to violate God's purpose and overthrow God's purpose, they established God's purpose. Though they did not intend to. And that's what they did. They rejected God's plan and they accomplished His will. They're not trying to. Instead, they crucified the Lord. The one, the one who identified Himself as God's divine Son. So, this is the first thing that the Gentiles and Jews showed their ignorance of God's wisdom. Secondly, Paul gives us a scripture quotation in Isaiah 64 4. And I'm not going to turn you there. Uh, what Paul does here is he gives us a paraphrase of Isaiah 64 4 things which eye has not seen. Ear is not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what Isaiah 64, 4 does. It proves what Paul's been saying, that men did not have the wisdom of God. They didn't know it. They didn't see it. But God has set it aside and prepared it 
for those who love him, the objects of his saving grace. Paul's use of the text proves this. So, I want to get to application before it gets too late. So, what we've seen so far in our text is a basic statement about the wisdom Paul speaks. It has a limited audience of mature believers. He gives us a twofold definition of this wisdom, not technic a technical definition. Uh, it is not of this age, but it's a special gift reserved for, by God for his own. And there is a compelling proof in verses eight and nine, the rulers showed they didn't have it, and the scriptures assert what Paul said, that God has reserved it for his people as a gift from his own hand. So, what, you might ask, what in the world does this have to do with us? Here we are in 2023, summer of 2023 on Flatbush Avenue. What does this mean to you and I? The number of, number of practical applications one of which, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but I do want to state it, that there is in Scripture higher truths and fundamental truths, both center in Jesus Christ. So when I say that there are higher truths, I don't want you to go away saying, well, see, Mr. Dewana thinks that the gospel is lower and there's something better. But that's what heretics teach. But, there are truths that are hard to understand, which the unstable twist to their own destruction. That's what Peter says. But we need to understand that there are levels of truth in the Word of God. And the first application I really wanted to make was that we mustn't expect that every person, every Christian, will be on the same level. That's fundamental to what Paul is saying. There's a wisdom for the mature. The Corinthians couldn't receive it. That's why Paul doesn't spell it out in so many words. Because you shouldn't expect that all Christians will be equally far along in their faith. Some Christians will understand some doctrines, but not others. And we have to be careful to fit the doctrines that we teach to the abilities of the people to receive. Now you see, you might say, well, then some people won't hear anything at all. No, they need to understand that there is doctrine which ought to be given to the people of God, which everyone will not be on the same level to receive. It's like a homogenized milk. You know what homogenized milk is? Homogenized, they, they homogenized milk and they homogenize paint, believe it or not. Paint is homogenized. And what they do is they make all the molecules of the same size. Truth is not homogenized so that everything is brought down to one level. That's not the way truth is in God's Word. And everyone is not equally ready to receive all of God's truth. So it is the task of teachers and preachers, and it requires much thought and prayer to fit the teaching that they give 
to the ability of God's people to understand. Now, sometimes as a Christian, you meet someone and you, you say, well, I think this person's a Christian, so I'm just going to start telling them the things I've found in my Bible. But they may not be ready to receive them. They may not be able to receive them. And you need to be careful not to demand that they will understand things that it has taken you years and years to learn. I'll give you an ex a, a small example of it. I hope it'll make it clear to you. So most of us here have understood that God has predestined people to believe the gospel and be saved. The doctrine of predestination. So I'll ask it, I'll ask it this way. How long did it take you to learn that doctrine? Well, for many of us, it took years. There were long periods of time when some Christians resisted that doctrine and regarded it as it's some kind of a spiritual disease, a kind of bubonic plague. They didn't want to hear about it. I remember speaking to one of my dear brethren. Had just that experience. He said, I can't possibly believe that God would do that. But God does that. And it takes time to understand. So when you meet people who don't understand your doctrine, you need to be patient. It's not wise to try to force feed people with truths they are unable to receive. You have to learn how to bring them along. You have to learn where they're at and build on that. In learning, we proceed from the known to the unknown. That's why you learn your ABCs before you learn how to spell big words and go to a national spelling bee. Because we proceed from what we know to what we don't know. So patience and love are required for helping brethren, especially young brethren in the faith. It takes prayer. And if you are not ready and willing to pray earnestly for those you try to teach, you shouldn't be surprised that they don't learn. We need much patience. We need prayer, wisdom, and perseverance to be able to teach the things of God to people who are not mature. So that's my first application. Don't be expecting all God's people to be on one level. It's a very challenging thing for me when I teach other covenants, because that's a difficult subject. I'm well aware. Secondly, keep in mind the true nature of what men offer by their unaided wisdom. Keep in mind the true nature of what men, say the rulers of this age, offer by their unaided wisdom. There are a lot of Christians who think that because somebody makes some kind of a religious profession and they get to a high office, that they have God's wisdom. They may have the dressing and the language, and they may even be genuinely converted and yet be lacking godly wisdom. You need to be aware. You need to understand what men offer by their unaided wisdom. It's a failing wisdom. You hear the declaration of the experts, what Paul calls the rulers or potential rulers. 
and you know the absence of regard for God and his word, that spells defeat from the start. This is why, although we pray for rulers, and we are not to resist human government and political programs, but we should have a limited expectation. If you pray for the conversion of leaders, of presidents and vice presidents and cabinet members and representatives and assemblymen, you should pray for them. That's what Paul tells Christians, I want men to pray for rulers and all who are in authority. So we should pray for them. Our expectation for them must not be naively optimistic. I'm going to say something that uh, I've known for many years that hasn't been so obvious as it is now. There's no Christian party. There's no Christian party. You might have been taught that certain parties are essentially Christian and religious, but in the United States today, there's no Christian party. There's no one party that represents what God says in his word. We need to be careful. We have an obligation as citizens not to cast aside our privileged responsibilities. We get to vote. If you're like me, that is a difficult task. Who am I going to vote for? But I, the one thing that comforts me, and I'll tell you this, is that the next president of the United States is not going to be determined by the electorate. It's not going to be determined by the people who vote in this country. It's going to be determined by God. Because he puts down one and he raises up another. God is in control of all the nations of the earth. And God is going to determine who will be the next president of the United States. So I have my responsibility to study, to know the issues, and to vote according to my conscience. But my hope is that God will act. And he has promised to act. Our hope is God. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in his church. Not in the leaders. Not in the leaders. Not in the rules of this age. Because these are the people who are failing. They're rejecting God's wisdom. See how the folly of man's wisdom is revealed. What do the experts say? They say, cast off scruples. You know, you've been taught religious things. Throw them out. They're, they're, they're not good. They're hurting people. They're saying, give away birth control. Allow abortion for minors without parental consent. Teach people that gender is an outworn relic of a past. That's what they're saying. They're ruining those for whom they rule. So beware of worldly wisdom. Because it leans out the word of God. Or it only appeals to it in a shallow manner. Don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to find wisdom? You need to go to God in prayer. Do you pray that way about the things that you hear? You get a, the History Channel and you get some program that tries to teach you about the way the world is going to work. Do you pray 
before you watch those programs? Do you pray before you read those blogs? Do you pray, Lord, I want to know what your Bible says. Keep me from falling for the false claims of men. Pray. Search the word of God. And don't settle for anything less but the wisdom that comes from the word of God. Well, last thing I want to say this morning, my last application, is that you and I need to know, and I'm just saying the same thing again, the right way to get wisdom. Where in the world can we get God's wisdom? Well, Proverbs chapter 2, here I end. Proverbs chapter 2 gives us good counsel about wisdom. Solomon, the second wisest man who ever lived behind the Lord Jesus Christ, told his sons about how to get wisdom in Proverbs chapter 2. Let me read it to you. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. See, it's not going to come automatically to you. You have to turn your ear to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift up your voice to, for, for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. You see that word hidden? That's the word Paul uses to describe God's wisdom. Hidden wisdom, mystery. If you will, seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So where do you get wisdom? Whether you're a very young child, five years old, or whether you are a very old man, a very old woman, 70s, 80s, 90s, it all comes from the same place and it all comes in the same way. You seek wisdom from God. Cry to him. Search the word of God. You mustn't be like a bratty little child who cries for something and then refuses at the same time. You know those kids? Mom, I want some candy. And then you give them some, no, I don't want that, I don't want this. Spoiled little brats who beg and beg and plead and then refuse. Don't claim to sin and unbelief. Look to Jesus Christ. Cry to him who is the embodiment of all God's wisdom. That's what we need to do. May God help us. May God help you. You are unconverted. Not to slap at God's provision, but to receive it gladly. Let's pray. Amen. We bow before you once again, our God, thankful for the word of God. Thank you for giving to the Apostle Paul the wisdom and the grace to speak to us about wisdom. And we thank you that he puts you and your son at the very center of it all. We pray for grace to receive it, to plead with you, to cry to you, to look to you, and to search your holy word wherein you have put the treasures 
of wisdom and of knowledge. So receive our thanks and bless these words to our souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.